Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're going to continue our, our study, our, our trek through the Gospel of Mark. If, you, if you're getting weary or faint-hearted, take hope, because uh, at the end of June, we're going to take a break from Mark, okay? So, so hold out just a little bit longer, and then, then there will be a reprieve, uh, and then, Lord willing, in the fall, we'll pick back up where, where we stop. Uh, but we're continuing through in, in, our gospel, in our study of the Gospel of Mark. So I want to start this morning, we're going to be looking at, at Mark chapter 7, we're, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 30. So verses 24 through 30, if you, you can turn there now, I'm going to actually, I'm going to read those first. So Mark t- 7 verses 24 through 30. Let's look at this curious exchange. So beginning in verse 24. And from there he rose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Well, that's our passage, and I've titled it A Curious Exchange. I couldn't think of a better way to describe those, that, that short passage. Um, hopefully, after having, having, me, having heard me read that, that title makes sense. It is a curious, a strange interaction between Jesus and this woman. It's, it's quite puzzling. And so our plan is to walk through it, and by the end of this message, my hope is that it won't be quite as curious, okay, quite as curious. I can't solve all the, the problems or the issues or your, answer all your questions, but I do think that we can, we can, we can establish um, a little bit of clarity. And so my hope is that at the end we'll have a, a little better understanding of what exactly is going on and why Jesus has this particular conversation with this particular Woman, and so before we before we get into the passage, I, I just want to start with two two uh, big picture observations that I think help set the stage as we look into this. So on, on, the first observation is that that on the surface, this interaction is it's a very normal interaction. And so what I mean by that is, as we've been following Jesus around Galilee, we've seen this scene play out before. So it's so it's really normal in that sense. So a person comes to Jesus seeking healing. We, we've seen that before. In this particular instance, a parent comes seeking healing for his child. Again, something we've seen before, if you remember Jairus and his daughter. And so the parent is, is desperate. Okay? A desperate person with a great need comes to Jesus having heard about Jesus. So it's not uncommon. So it is a normal occurrence. And so understanding that this happens a lot, we have, a, we have an idea about what the main point or what the main idea would seem to be. Namely, that Jesus has unbelievable power, right? That, that is an amazing thing that, that Jesus, he doesn't even say, I, I've, I've casted her out, or he doesn't even say, be out. But he, from a distance, not even close to her, the, the demon is gone, okay? So, so that's power. So, so that is one of the points here, okay? But the fact that it happens here makes me think that there's another main idea, 
Okay, so one of the applications, as I mentioned, is, is the mighty power of Jesus that he heals from a distance. So that is. But our second observation um, that, that helps us think about this first one is, is the context, observing the context. And, and one rule in studying the Bible is, if you can remember this, context is king. So context is king. Context is, is one of the best tools that you have as a student of Scripture. And so this is a normal occurrence, yes, but, but on another hand, in another sense, it is not a normal occurrence because of where it takes place. And so think about it, if you weren't with us, um, you, have, you have to um, try and catch up, but if you were, were with us, think about last week, what happened in, in verses 1 through 23 of chapter uh, 7. So we saw Jesus in, in this traditionalism and the dangers of traditionalism, but one thing that Jesus did in that conversation was he made, he made declarations about cleanliness and uncleanliness, about, about purity and defilement. And so if you remember, he was talking to, to these Jewish leaders, and his main point is that it's not what goes into a person, it's not about these food laws, these regulations that make someone defiled or unclean, but it's rather the human heart from out from which all these dirt, uh, impure things come, or these defilement is from inside out. And that was a clear point that he made, and Mark said, in, if you look up in, in verse 19, that by saying this, he declared all foods clean. So that's an important, important remark, because now, think about this. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders, to these Jewish leaders. And when he declares that all foods are clean, and that many of the traditions of the Jews were, were contrary to God's commands, that's the point he made. You hold the traditions of men over the commands of God. Okay, so he's making this point. What, what Jesus has just done is he's undercut the entire structure of distinction for the Jews. Their distinction was found in keeping these food laws and these ritual obligations. So when Jesus says it's not about that, he undercuts the whole structure of distinction that's been set up. In other words, things like food and ritual observances were the things that distinguished the Jews from others. And as we saw, they took pride in their differentness, their difference. And so, as these Jews are holding to these things, they're doing so thinking that it's preventing defilement. And Jesus is saying that's not how you prevent defilement. And so, uh, assuming that the mindset of these Jews, the Jews were the clean and the pure ones, the Gentiles were the unclean, defiled ones, so when Jesus says that defilement isn't about what comes in, but what comes out, he radically levels the playing field. It's about the human heart, and so cleanliness and defilement, it's not about keeping laws, it's about keeping the heart, okay? So that, that's the point he made. So, therefore, when Jesus has this particular interaction with this particular woman, it has to be seen in light of that context, about this whole discussion on defilement. And so Mark records this here, this healing, because what I think Mark is doing, what Jesus is doing, is giving a concrete example of Jesus' disregard for the scribal concept of defilement. So he's just said it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about these keeping of the laws and the food. And to show you that, I'm going to heal this Gentile woman. And so think about this. On the heels of this defilement discussion, Jesus encounters a situation that has unclean written all over it. So he enters an unclean Gentile region. He encounters an unclean Gentile woman, and he's asked to cast out an unclean evil spirit. And so as we're reading this, we realize there's much more at stake than simply a display of power, though that is one of the points, his, his power. Rather, the, the main point is that Jesus' power is being displayed in a Gentile land, and the benefactor is a Gentile woman. And so we're going to see that, that this passage here at the end of, or in the middle of, of Mark 7 is going to transition us to a section of Mark's gospel that highlights Jesus' ministry in Gentile lands. So next week we'll see the feeding of, of the crowd in a Gentile land, and the, the, the majority of whom were probably Gentiles. 
And so as Jesus is, is working miraculously in these areas, that, that's, that's amazing to the first readers that he's even in Gentile lands, but also that Gentiles are actually being healed by Jesus. That's, that's another amazing thing, that Jesus is accepting and healing these Gentiles. And so it's a big deal. And, and in fact, we'll, we'll make the point later that this is a lesson that the early church had to learn over and over and over. This Jewish-Gentile distinction was, was continually giving them problems. And so here in our, our passage, we have Jesus affirming the, the cleanliness of a Gentile woman who displays faith in him. Okay, so that, that's kind of the two observations that, that, that kind of set the stage. But now let's look at, at our verses themselves. So it's only seven verses, so there's not much of an outline, but, but I did break it up into the setting, verses 24 through 26, and then the exchange or the interaction in verses 27 through 30. So, so first, let's look at verses 24 through 26, the setting. So again, this story picks up right where, where the interaction with the Pharisees left off, and after he talked to the Pharisees, he had his own disciples in a house, and he is explaining what true defilement is about. And then in verse 24, Mark says that from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know. And so it would be helpful maybe if you, if you did a little Google search for, for map of um, Tyre and Sidon or map of Galilee or map of Jerusalem in Jesus' time because it, it's really helpful to, to see the geography. Because if you're looking at a map, you have Jerusalem. Now I'm going to, can't, I can't reflect what I'm saying, so just listen to me. <laughs> Don't follow my fingers. Uh, but so you have Jerusalem that, that's down it's down southeast of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. So Jerusalem is down. But then, then as you go north, um, you, you have um, along... So above Galilee, okay, you have um, Samaria, and then you get... So Jerusalem, maybe next week, remind me, I'll put a map up there, okay? So Sea of Galilee, Gal, region of Galilee, where Jesus is doing most of his ministry. South of that is Jerusalem. So that's a city center. That's where his crucifixion and things take place. But it's when, as you go north, and it's actually northwest, along the Mediterranean Sea, you have these two port cities of, of Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus, most of his ministry is Galilee and Jerusalem. And then there's a few times where he makes these, these ex- excursions outside of those main areas. This is one of those when he goes up there. Another one, you think about when he goes to, through Samaria and he meets the Samaritan woman. Okay, Samaria was between Galilee and Jerusalem. But... So, so these are, these are um, cities of, of Phoenicia. They are two coastal cities. They're, they're main ports, main port cities, big cities. Um, they're popular for trade. But the thing that I want to point out um, for our passage is that Sidon specifically, now these are, it's, they're, they're sometimes referred to as one region, but they're two cities that are, that are a couple, maybe 20, 25 miles apart. But, but Sidon, in Old Testament history, this is the city where Jezebel came from. And so if you think about with, with Elijah the prophet, the, the queen, the evil queen who married Ahab, so this is Old Testament, it's before Jesus, but she came from Sidon, and she was, she was the picture of, of paganism. So she in, instituted the worship of Baal, and she set up all these Baal priests. And if you remember on Mount Carmel when Elijah and, and the priests of Baal have this showdown, okay, Jezebel is the person who had, had brought all those priests of Baal. And so that, that history had carried into the present time as Jesus is walking, so that the, the Jews, when they're reading that Jesus is going up to Sidon and Tyre, right, they're not, they're not friendly with that nation, with those cities. In fact, if, if you're familiar with a, a Jewish historian named Josephus, he actually, in his writings, refers to Tyre as one of Israel's bitterest enemies. Okay, so there's, there's this, this tension between the Jews and with, with Tyre, and so when Jesus goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon, Mark's readers would have been somewhat surprised at what takes place there because these, these are the enemies, these are the, the opponents. And yet here Jesus goes and he finds this woman 
who, who displays faith that would have not been expected to, to be there. And so Jesus goes up into that region, and Mark doesn't say why he's gone. He only says that he goes there, and he wants to, he enters a house because he doesn't, wanna, wasn't, doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. So probably he's going to get rest, maybe spend time with his disciples. But regardless of purpose, like we've become accustomed to, to, to seeing, he couldn't be hidden. His reputation has preceded him. So he gets to the house, maybe has a few moments of silence or of quiet, but then people come. So verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and she came to him. So I assume there's lots of people that come, but, but Mark focuses on this one woman whose, whose daughter has an unclean spirit. So she comes desperate, falls at his feet. Now, now I think one of the reasons that, that I think the main point is, is this woman being a Gentile is look there, let's do a little, little experiment. If you look down there at verse 26, so if you see verse 26, now your translation may vary, but verse 26 should say, should kind of have two parts, something about who the woman was and what the woman did, okay? So, so break the verse down in that way with me. Now here's the experiment. If you cut out the first part of verse 26, the part that says who she was, and just read from 25 through 26, it'd make perfect sense. So in my translation, it says that, that here's this woman, immediately a woman whose little daughter had unclean spirit. She came, fell down at his feet. Then you cut out the first part of 26, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Okay, so if you take that part out, it, it conveys perfectly clear what would have happened. Okay, So it makes sense, right? Here's this woman, she comes, and then she begs him, Jesus, to cast out the demon. But the fact that Mark makes the clarification at the beginning of verse 26, the fact that that's there, tells me that it's important. Because it didn't have to be there. Because the story could have conveyed without it being there. But but Mark includes at verse 26, somewhat repetitively, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. We already know that she's most likely a Gentile. I mean, look at where she lives. And that's, that he's gone to this Gentile land. So, so we know pretty much who she is. But here Mark is, is emphasizing who she is. And so I, I would argue that Mark's, Mark's point in telling this, his main concern isn't what happened, but, but rather who it happened to. That her identity is, is the, the crux of this, of this encounter. She's a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician by birth. Mark is stressing her, this woman's non-Jewish character. And so she comes to him. Her daughter has an unclean spirit, and, and she's desperate. So she falls at his feet, begging him to cast this demon out. And so now, now we have this. So we have this scene. She, she's come into the house, and she's cast herself down at Jesus' feet, saying, Please cast this demon out of my daughter. Now, if we hadn't read the rest of the passage, so let's pretend like we don't know what happens, based on what we've seen thus far in Mark's gospel, it wouldn't be hard to imagine how we think this might end, right? We, we know the character of Jesus. We've seen it on display so far. And so it wouldn't be hard to imagine, right, if, if the hypothetical continues, Jesus, she comes, she falls in on his feet, I cast this, this demon on my daughter. It wouldn't be hard to imagine Jesus saying, your daughter's been made well. Go in peace, your faith, has, your, your faith has made your daughter well. That, that wouldn't surprise us, would it? Right? We've seen that, res- that type of response so far, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? That's not the response we see. So look at verse 27 as we move to the exchange, uh, to these inter- this interaction. Let's see what's, what's exactly going on, because verse 27, notice, look down there at yeah, your Bibles, verse 27. He said to her, he doesn't say, okay, your faith has made you well. Rather, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what kind of answer is that? Right? What, what in the world is he talking about? Now, I, I want to I say two things at the outset. I want to say first what I, what I don't think Jesus is saying. 
And I want to try and tell you what I think Jesus is saying. Okay, so first what Jesus isn't saying. I don't think that, that the primary purpose of this illustration, I think this is an illustration. I think Jesus is using this as an illustration. And I think his primary purpose is not to establish identities. Okay, so I, so I don't think he's telling this, and, he, and I don't think he expects the woman to, to identify, you're a dog. I don't think that's what he's saying. Okay, some people will, will make that point. Maybe it's there, but, but I don't think it's necessary. In fact, in light of what happened earlier in chapter 7, right, all people are dogs, right? If that's, if that's the case, it's everyone's a dog. So I, I don't think his purpose is establishing identities. I don't think he's conveying this and wants her to automatically think, well, I'm a dog, um, though, though certainly part of that is conveyed. But here's what I think he's doing. Why, here's why I think he does use this illustration. I think his main purpose in telling this illustration is to establish priorities, so I think he's establishing priority. So it's not about identity. It's not about, well, who am I in this? But it's rather priority. It's, it's this, this principle of priority. And so he alludes to, to a current domestic scene, a scene that would have been common among his hearers. Okay, the, think about it. This, this table is set and the, the family is gathered for dinner. We got, we got the parents and the kids all, all gathered around the table. And so in this scene, I think what Jesus is saying is it would have been inappropriate before we served the family, prepared all this food, it would have been inappropriate to say, okay, you guys, kids, you don't get the, the meal, you don't get this food, we're going to throw it to the dogs, right? That's, that, that's not the right, the, the, the food is for the kids, right? That's the priority, okay? And so in the scene, it would have been inappropriate to interrupt the meal and allow the household pet to carry off the children's food, right? The children get the food. That, that's who it's for. The priority is on the children, there's a privilege that belongs to the children that does not belong to the dog. No matter how much you love the dog, right? Children, when present, should take priority. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Uh, and so Jesus' response, it, it's shocking. His shocking response isn't him telling her that she isn't worthy because she's a dog. Rather, his shocking response is telling her that the food isn't for her. Her identity as a Gentile set her underneath in terms of priority the Jews. Now, we'll say more about that in a minute, okay? So I'm not done there. We'll, we'll work that out. But, but look at the response of this woman in verse 28, because I think that that's going to help us as we keep working through. Look at her response in verse 28. Imagine that the ways that she could have gone with this conversation. Having heard this, this illustration, having heard this, this word from Jesus, I mean, she's basically been denied. Jesus has, has refused her, or at least appears to, says the food's not for you. And so she could have, she could have left, disheartened, hopeless because of her daughter. She could have been frustrated. She could have been angry. She could have gotten to an argument. She could have said, well, I'm not a dog. That, that's not me. You, you got me all wrong. But she didn't do any of those things. Notice verse 28. Notice how she answers him. She answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yet even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I mean, this, this is a remarkable response. I mean, this response, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's amazing. Notice, notice that she accepts the premise that the children are to be fed first. She doesn't take issue with that priority, does she? She doesn't say, well, I'm a child too. She accepts that premise. But she points out that even when the children are fed, their food reaches the floor and becomes the food for the dogs also. And if you have young kids, you can, you can testify to that, right? Food always ends up on the floor. And so in her argument, she's saying the children and the dogs can both eat. You can feed the children first, and, and the dogs are still going to get food. And so here she is, not, not seeking to take away the children's bread, but like a dog, merely she's seeking to share in their leftover crumbs. 
So, so that's, how, that's how she responds. Now, now one point that, that, that I want to make that, that a lot of people pointed out as I read, which at first I, I, wasn't, I was a bit skeptical, um, but the more I came across it and the more I looked at it, the more I thought, yeah, this is right. And the, the, that's the fact that this woman seems to be picking up on Jesus' use of the word first in verse 27. That, that, that's a big word there. So you see there in verse 27, the, the word first. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. One, one commentator helpfully comments, the term first in Jesus' reply is intended to indica- indicate that she as a Gentile is not excluded from God's mercy, but that there exists a divinely established temporal priority in which the Jew is first. And so that word first is, is a big thing. It's a big word. So if you look back, here's another experiment. Let's look back at verse 27. So if you read verse 27 without the word first in it, think how it changes. So listen, without the word first, Jesus says to her, let the children be fed, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Do you see how that changes things? But, but, but this woman seems to pick up on that first and, and find hope and say first. So that, so that means that, that it's not last. That's not all, that, that there's more to this story. And so it's as though she, she says, yes, yes, yeah, yes, I understand that. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, so, she, so she accepts the priority. And so there's implications in the word first, which is why she replies the way she does. Even when the children get their food first, some of it always finds its way in the floor, so the dogs get the crumbs. And when the dogs get the crumbs, they still eat, and they don't violate the priority of the children. So, so let me just, a few, few reasons why this response is, is remarkable. First, as I mentioned, she accepts the distinction that Jesus makes between the two groups of people. Right? This is why I don't think it's right to say, well, he's calling her a dog, because she doesn't get offended. She accepts it. She says, okay, you're right. There is a priority. She, she doesn't find fault with Jesus' description there. Second, she doesn't care whether she's given food from the table or the floor. Isn't that remarkable? Right? In her mind, the crumbs from the floor would be enough. It's not about, about, about uh, abundance. It's just about a little bit. Just give me a little bit. She's in desperate need. She's come to Jesus for help. And she'll take anything from him, even the crumbs on the floor that weren't in, originally intended for her. And then third, the third remarkable thing is, here's a Gentile woman who's not afraid to, to challenge, and I think, that's, I think that's the right word, she challenges a Jewish man. So she challenges his willingness to help her. It's as if she says, I realize that the food isn't primarily for the dogs, but what hungry dog doesn't benefit from the children being fed? Right? She's challenging what, what he said. She comes to Jesus as it, as it were, as a dog begging for food. And she doesn't see why his illustration excludes her. Okay, right, I get it. Children first, good. But dogs get food that falls on the floor. She's not asking for a catered full-course meal, just a little crumb of Jesus' power for a little dog. Right? That, that's, her, that's her posture before Jesus. And so, so after these two rounds, this back and forth, we're going to see Jesus' final response. But, but a question that I, I definitely think, want to address before we move on is why does Jesus prolong this exchange, right? Why doesn't he agree to heal her daughter immediately, right? He initially pushes it off. He eventually does heal her. Well, why? Why, why doesn't he just heal her at the first, at the first place? So, so why is there this prolonging of this healing? Now, there, there's really two, two ways that you, could, that you could think about this. First, it could be that Jesus really viewed his ministry as primarily to the Jews. So that he's talking, he's saying, it's not for you. It's not for you. It could be that Jesus makes this comment because he wasn't intending on healing this woman. He'd, he'd escaped 
He wanted to get away from, from, from the crowds, and so she comes and he says, it's not for you. This isn't the time. So, if you think along that, then when he does hear her response, it's as though he's impressed or, or surprised that he says, wow, look at this faith. I'll grant your request. Okay, now that's possible. Some people will, will argue that. I don't, I don't think that's the most likely way. I think the more likely way to understand this is that Jesus prolongs this exchange because he's being intentionally provocative. I think he's intentionally making the statement to, to bring out her clear faith. So I think, that's, I think that's his point. I think that Jesus' statement about the children and dogs is, is intentionally puzzling. So, that, so we would say, well, why did he say that? I think he says that to this woman for the purpose of testing her faith. I mean, he, he wasn't going to allow. So in this culture at this time, there, there are lots of magic men. So people who just walked around, and there were these divine men who just, they healed everybody, and people came to them for that quick fix. And Jesus wasn't going to allow himself to be, be misunderstood and viewed as just another miracle worker. He was much more than that. And his power would be, would be displayed only in response to faith. And so his statement about the children and dogs was simply a test for this woman. Are you convinced that, that I can heal your daughter? Are you convinced? Do you really believe it? Or are you going to be turned away with this, this, simple, this simple statement? Are you going to go to the next guy down the street and seek your healing? Or have you come to me because you've heard of me? And so I think, I think it's, a, it's a test, and, and it reveals her faith, which is why her, her faith and confidence is displayed in her response. Yeah, but even the dogs get a little bit, Jesus. I'm here for the bread. I'm here for the crumbs. Give me a little bit. And so it's followed by Jesus' willingness to, her, to grant her request. Notice verse 29. He said to her, for this statement, because you've said this, because of your response, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, it, it seems that, that she has proved her faith, that it's been revealed even clear, more clear than it was initially. She really does believe that Jesus can heal her daughter. She's not going to go away. She, she's going to find a way to get bread from this man, even if it's just crumbs on the floor. And she's convinced that, that something as small as crumbs on the floor are able to satisfy her need. She doesn't need a basket full of leftovers, just some crumbs. And so this Gentile woman here in this passage is displaying great faith. In fact, Matthew's account of this same in occurrence, he uses the word great faith that she had. Mark doesn't use that language, but there's no doubt that, that Mark intends for us to see great faith on display. And then verse 30, she went home, she found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. And so the passage ends with evidence of Jesus' power. Right? Mark has to make sure that it records that, yeah, what he said actually happened. So the demon was gone. And so he has power to heal. Well, well let me close with, with three, uh, three applications from, from this passage, three, three kind of takeaways for us. And so first, I think the first takeaway is the priority of the Jews in the, the history of salvation. Okay, the priority of the Jews. Now, I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but it's certainly part of the teaching here that there's a priority for the Jews. The children are to be fed first, is what Jesus says. Now, anyone familiar with the storyline of the Bible understands that, that Israel played a major role in the history of salvation, right? Israel was, was, a, was a key player, was, was the key player in the history of salvation. God raises up Abraham, if you remember, it's right after this, this Tower of Babel, and all the nations are spread, and so then it's Genesis 12, there's one nation, he's going to focus on one nation, Abraham and all his descendants, and there's this, this special relationship that God enters into with Israel, a covenant is the word used. He is their God, the God of Israel, in a way that he's not to the other nations. 
It's a special relationship. God makes promises to them. Abraham's seed, right? There, there's this, this, this promise, this line of the seed. He's going to be the blessing. He's going to bless the nations. He's going to come through you, your offspring, Abraham. The Messiah would come from Abraham's people. The Messiah would be Jewish. And that, that's how the story unfolds. God chose and used Israel. God was working out salvation in history by using this one nation. Without Abraham, without the Israelites, without the Jewish people, there's no Messiah and there's no Christianity. Right? So, so there's a priority given in the, the history of salvation to the Jews. To, now when I say Jews and Israelites, they're, they're, they're the same. Okay? So it's, it's referring to the same group when I use it. Maybe, maybe that's wrong, but that's how I'm using it. But, 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 so we see this pattern. We've seen it in the Gospels when Jesus goes to a town. He goes to the synagogue. And that's what he does. He goes to the synagogue first, and he proclaims the good news, whether in Galilee or in Jerusalem. He's going to synagogue after synagogue, and it's because if anyone needed to hear the good news of the Messiah, it was the Jews, because their whole, their whole history had been leading up to this. And so he, he sets this precedent. I'm going to the, the Jew first, and this, this, this pattern is continued in, in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, it's amazing how often when Paul goes to a city, the first thing he does, he goes to a synagogue. That's what he first does. Now, oftentimes he's kicked out of that, and then he finds another meeting, like Lydia down by the river, a group of of God-fearers, but the priority is going to the Jews. And in fact, in Romans 3, Paul Paul is wrestling with this this same same issue, where he says there's advantage to being Jew. There's much in every way. He says they were the ones entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul prioritized the, 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 the privilege of the Israelites, of the Jews, And so whatever you believe about the Jews and the nation of Israel, you must at least grant that through their history, God has worked mightily, and all ethnic Jews deserve to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, right? The the gospel is for Jewish people, of all people, right? It's their history that, that brought about the Messiah. So there's priority to the Jews, but our understanding of the Jews must not alter our understanding of the gospel or the necessity of faith. So that no Jew will ever be saved because they're Jewish. Right? We, can't, we can't be mixed up about that. Jews will only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so Jewish people are not saved because of their ethnicity. No one is. And so in that sense, there's nothing unusual or special about Israel. All people must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we are in salvation history. Right? The, the gospel has gone forth to the ends of the earth. And so now in, in in another sense, Israel is, is on the level playing field with every nation that needs to hear the good news and repent and believe. So the salvation of the Jews, the salvation of Iranians, the salvation of Americans, the salvation of all people, it's not about ethnicity, but it's contingent on faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the second application. In light of the first, we, we can't lose the, the, the necessity or the importance of faith. There's a necessity of faith. So with the development of the New Testament in the early church, there's a shift, and, and I'd say this is a, a real shift that, that takes place in how God or how Paul and the apostles talk about the Israelites. And so it's no longer about ethnic identity. Right? So, so he would say in, in Romans chapter 9 that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. What in the world do you mean? Well, he's making the point that it's not about ethnicity. There's lots of, of ethnic Jews who are not part of Israel. And so in Paul's mind, this, as, as this revelation has progressed... The, the true Israel are those who are Abraham's children, not by, by blood, but by faith. 
And so faith is the identifying mark. It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, he would say in Romans 9, but the children of the promise and counted as offspring through faith. So faith is the mark of the people of God. So what Paul is arguing is that true Israel is identified not by ethnicity but by faith. So it doesn't really matter what one's ethnic identity is. A Gentile woman is not excluded. Her faith in Jesus is her calling card. The people of God are identified by their faith in Jesus so that there's no longer any distinction. Faith and faith alone is what saves regardless of ethnic identity. And so we we learn from this woman the, the precious truth that faith, true faith, is never rejected. No one who casts themselves on the mercy of God is ever disappointed. Faith is what pleases God, this this dependence, this humility, this casting yourself upon the mercy of God. These are the things that that mark the people of God, which ironically is what this woman displays and what the Pharisees and the scribes don't display. And so the people of God, it's becoming clear that the kingdom of God is not about pride and ethnic identity. It's about humility and, and trusting in Jesus. And so when Jesus grants this woman's request, he's setting the stage for the future mission of the church, a mission that, by the way, it didn't start with Jesus. It started back with Abraham. Actually, we could say it started back with Adam and Eve. It's this, this national, this global blessing. All nations are going to be blessed through one man. And that comes through faith. And so if you're familiar with the New Testament, I mentioned this earlier, but this Jew-Gentile, this would be a continual struggle for the early church. They didn't know how to reconcile these ethnic di- distinctions or differences. How could a Jew and a Gentile fellowship together? How could pure and impure share meals together? And, and this, this, this passage is, is similar and reminded me of Acts chapter 10, where Peter has to be taught this same lesson with a vision of, of this, this sheet coming down with all kinds of food on it and three times. And Peter says, what in the world is going on? And he realizes that God is declaring clean all people. There's no distinction. There's not, it's not that Jews are better than Gentiles. And so then Peter then goes to Cornelius' house to, to, to a Gentile, and, and he shares them. Now I know that God shows no distinction. He's taught me that. And then the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles, not because they, they've become Jewish, but because of faith, because they hear and they believe. And so last application is, is the distinctionless mercy of God. This, and I think this is the main point of the passage, the distinctionless mercy of God. In the healing of this Gentile woman, we see God's ability to show mercy to all people. God gives crumbs of mercy to all people. So at the heart of this incident, we see the place of Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. So we see this woman who's, who's accepted by Jesus. And as Peter would say in Acts 10, I see that, that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation, every nation who fear him and do what is right. The good news of the gospel is that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the good news of the gospel. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's that's the point that Paul makes in in Romans chapter 3. He's gone through, here's how Gentiles are are sinners, here's how Jews are sinners. Then, Then in 3.23, all have sinned. There's no distinction. And the good news is that God shows mercy sinners aren't, aren't eliminated, aren't, aren't excluded from receiving the mercy of God. All have unclean hearts that cannot be self-cleansed, and all are in need of God's mercy. And so this is good news for us, that, that we are welcomed by the mercy of God. It's not, it, it's, it doesn't show distinction. I mean, think about not many of us. I, I would venture to say no one here is an ethnic Jew, maybe a couple, but we're all Gentiles. 
And so this is good news that this woman is accepted. Because that means there's, there's hope for us. And this is, if, if you write, write down Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 14 and following, the end of chapter 2, where, where Paul makes this point that there's at one time where Gentiles were without hope. They're cut off from the promises, strangers to the covenant. But now in Christ Jesus, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes into explaining what Jesus has done in breaking down the wall of hostility. It's not about Jew or Gentile. It's about one new man in Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the point is Jesus, the priority of faith in him. It doesn't matter who you are. Faith in Jesus is what, 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 what characterizes the people of God. And so this is good news for us. We're, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's no favoritism. There's no distinction those of faith, those who have put their faith in Jesus have been reconciled to God. And we're all on, on, on level playing field. There's no second-class citizen in the kingdom. Right? It's not like, well, well, I'm Jewish, so I have a higher place. No, there's no distinction. By faith alone, we're all debtors to mercy. And so be encouraged this morning. I mean, there's good news for us. We've been, we've been welcomed, though once strangers, so if you're a Christian, it's good news for you. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, this is good news for you also. If you're not a Christian, Rowdy is, you're separated from God. You're, you're a stranger. You don't know him. But the good news of this passage for you is that God's mercy is available to you. I don't know who you are here this morning, but, but the good news is that, that regardless of your identity, your past, your social standings, your own feelings of your worth, none of that matters what matters is that God has shown you mercy in sending his son. And so if you're here not a Christian, hear me say, cast yourself on the mercy of God that's seen in Christ Jesus. You will not be disappointed. There's salvation for any who repent and believe. And so cast yourself on him. Put your faith in him. Trust in him and you will receive mercy. This, this passage screams good news for you if you're not a Christian. But also, the, the last, last point that I'll make here is that for those of us who are already Christians, th- this truth, this distinctionless mercy of God affects how we view the world around us, doesn't it? How easy it is for us to distinguish between likely and unlikely converts, right? It, it's easy for us to think, well, in our minds, okay, well, that, yeah, I don't want to waste my time with that person. They're, they're hard-hearted. Right? They, they, they are not open to the gospel. Maybe I'll share with this person. Now, now there's some wisdom there. I, I'll give you that. But this passage tells us that there is no such thing as a likely convert. We're all unlikely converts, yet God's mercy has been extended in the person of Christ. And so we have a message to tell, and that's a powerful message that breaks hard hearts, regardless of past, regardless of mindset. And so because this mercy of God is is distinctionless, let us be encouraged as we think about those around us, whether whether co-workers, whether, whether a child, whether a a sibling or a parent, those who in our minds are far from God and don't see any hope, be encouraged because there is hope in the gospel. It's a powerful gospel. So be encouraged. Maybe this week you'll have an opportunity to share with a non-Christian. Share boldly because the gospel is good news. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And so are no such thing as unlikely converts as we see in the life of this, the passage, this occurrence of this Gentile woman who's an unlikely recipient of God's mercy, yet she receives mercy. Let's pray.